This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Thank you very much, Jikoji. My Sangha, along with the A-Town Sangha members here and my friends, I titled the talk today, Hearing the Cries of the World. I think it's a really apt one. And I thought that I might start off by reading something that I wrote uh, and then looking at it piece by piece. And then I certainly want to hear from this wonderful group of, of Sangha members, so many deep, deep practitioners. Um, it'd be a wonderful opportunity to share. In this time of uncertainty and suffering, we may be called to more than listening to the cries of the world. We may be called to action, to follow in the footsteps and example of a most favored saint in all of Zen, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. This is heartfelt work in a confusing, frightening, and painful time when spiritual practice can be a powerful shared medicine, much more than simply a welcome soothing balm or habit. The reason it is such powerful medicine is that the bodhisattva ideal cuts to the heart of the mystery of being alive. And that mystery, that essence, is shunyata, the emptiness detailed so exquisitely in the Heart Sutra. But accepting the emptiness of shunyata, of non-attachment, how do we embrace the role of shedding blood and tears and searching desperately and often futilely for a skillful response, to suffer ourselves as a bodhisattva while recognizing the emptiness at the heart of all things. The upaya or skillful means required for this path, it, it seems celestial in quality, not human for us mortals. And perhaps this is why in our Mahayana practice of Zen, there's two types of bodhisattvas, earthly and transcendental. The first type, earthly, we may undertake as to follow as intentions, as the vow that we take in the Jukai, as the noble eightfold path. and has the precepts in it and paramitas to act as guiding lights. And the second, celestial, serves as an inspiration for courage and energy, resilience, like a morning star. And like the sun, we can feel its effects but we can never look at it directly with our naked eyes without losing our vision. 
Yet we know, we, we can feel that it's there. Hearing the cries of the world is gut-wrenching, despair-making. But it's essential to remind us of our intention. Shunyata uncovered and revealed through the meditative power of our practice, Prajnaparamita, holds the mysterious power of enlightenment that allows us to be effective and not submerged by the things of the world as was in the Metta Sutta we just chanted and as it advises. Instead of denying reality or becoming numb with those cries, instead of generating elaborate myths of future rewards, ultimate answers, or a comforting meaning in suffering, recognizing shunyata encourages us to be with things exactly as they are. Just thusness, suchness, such as they are with an open to all and loving heart for all sentient beings and with action, not just ideas, ideals, or meditation. For each of us, the how will be specific to our circumstances, context, timing, skills. The Bodhisattva path is not general, not a formula. It is specific and derived from the actions we take in response to hearing the cries of the world. So to kind of explore this a little further, you know, I, I looked in several different, different areas. I looked at Musong's The Heart of the Universe, the exploration of the Heart Sutra, may even have been part of a practice period book that was recommended. I looked at a book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, which is won a Pulitzer in 1974. And uh, it's kind of an existentialist view. And of course, I looked at Dogen, Moon in a Dewdrop, which is basically a collection of some of the fascicles from the true, true eye of the Dharma that he, that he wrote. And lastly, I looked at Viktor Frankl, my old battered copy of Man's Search for Meaning, which many of you, I'm sure, have, have uh, read. It's a, it's a classic story of his experience in the concentration camps during World War II in Auschwitz and his kind of observation of what happened there and it really informed his work as a psychiatrist and became the basis for a style of psychotherapy called logotherapy. And logos is Greek for meaning or spirit. So it was a search for meaning. And 
I see that that thread is really a part of what this talk is about. Hearing the cries of the world and thinking about the, the suffering that we see, that gut-wrenching feeling that's far beyond just an intellectual understanding. So in understanding that, what, what his suggestion was, is that if you can find a why to live, you can bear almost any how, even in the concentration camp. So this wasn't some theory developed in graduate school. Or this was something that he saw and witnessed and worked with in his, in his many, many years. In Buddhism, we kind of have two strands of thinking that interplay as well. And that's why I think existentialism and uh, some of these themes go, go really, really well with this. On the one hand, we've got shunyata, this recognition that's perceived not through talking. It's not about a description of something that, ah, oh, now I've read enough books and I understand now what it is. It's something that is expressed over and over as only accessible through prajnaparamita, only through our meditative efforts, only through practice. And it's described using words as best that we can as being the emptiness of time, of momentariness, momentariness, transitoriness, the recognition that there is nothing, not only permanent, but that things take form just as moments, as processes. And this is so different than our own inner world of feeling of as we comprise a self and try to improve it goes against the grain you might say or is difficult to accept intellectually sure people can make all kinds of you know they can agree to anything intellectually but to actually experience it is perhaps part of what a definition of practice enlightenment is. And so, looking at the Heart Sutra, it still mentions, it still mentions that suffering will be relieved when practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita. We didn't chant the Heart Sutra this morning, we chanted the Metta Sutra because I thought it was kind of more appropriate, but the Heart Sutra makes the claim that when practicing deeply Prajnaparamita, which would be in our, for just dis, our discussion's sake, the, the deep connection to Shunyata, you're relieved of all suffering and distress.
So that's something I, I want to lay out to the uh, assembled elders, wise, and not in age, in wisdom. <laughs> um, the experience of that. I'd love to hear if this has been your experience that when practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, perhaps in a sashin or a zazenkai or just sitting in your daily practice. I, I have felt that. I have felt that connection with a non-verbal, non-cognitive uh, connection to this experience, this mystery of life. But I wouldn't say that it's taken away my suffering. And this has always been a question for me, a curiosity. You know, is my experience unusual? Are other people around me able to, when practicing deeply, eliminate their suffering? I thought that perhaps it's a momentary relief is what is talked about. And so I guess I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the case <laughs> because I have not lost that. And in fact, as I wrote, I feel like the feeling, the empathy that is required to become a bodhisattva, it, it requires that you feel. So perhaps unlike an emergency room doctor where feelings must be kept to the side, if you want to be effective, it can be caring, but you have to really build a very uh, strong and fortified uh, defense against, so you can be effective against the suffering that you see. But in the bodhisattva ideal, as we walk this path, it seems to me, and again, I pose this as a question, so I see if, if this is on the right track. It seems to me that what is required is this celestial ability to let go of the suffering that we feel. So it isn't to go numb and it's not to, it, not to create vast amounts of mythological benefits that we're accruing but it's to have the ability, which Viktor Frankl says is unlimited. The amount of suffering that we can bear, we might feel, oh, I can't bear anymore. Viktor Frankl says absolutely wrong. Makes no difference how much suffering, how much loss you've incurred. You can bear it and it's endless, it's endless. And I think that his experience had numerous opportunities to show that. Because even when the people were, the few that survived got out, for many of them, the why of their surviving had to do with, I 
can't wait, as you can imagine, to see my family, to see my children, see my wife, see my parents. And then to get out and find out that they were gone. So this, these are the people that Viktor Frankl worked with. And what he said was, we find a why by answering the question that life poses to us. And that question is always specific to us. A lot of our experience is, is in common, but our own circumstances, timing, context, makes it ours. Life asks us the question, how will we respond? For the Bodhisattva, this is kind of one of the benefits in that the Bodhisattva ideal is one of service. And hence, we have an answer of selflessness. And as I look at this world and I see the suffering, I think myself that you would see that it's the result of self selfishness. It is the result of wanting the best for your children, not all children. In the Metta Sutta, you may have seen that one line that's an interesting one. It says, it, it, it advises not to want riches even for one's family. And that's, that's not the case with most cultures. So that's another question I lay on the table here. And I hope each of you will take one of these questions. We're going to need about three or four days. But <laughs> in the time of a pandemic, <laughs> we may have some time. I want to also bring in the idea of sentient beings. In all aspects of Zen that I read, from Dogen, Nagarjuna, Shakyamuni Buddha, in the Lankavatara Sutra, in our precepts, every place I look is to do no harm and to be supportive of sentient beings, all sentient beings. It doesn't say, oh, now, here's the group of sentient beings who are righteous, and the others be damned. <laughs> Again, in the Metta Sutta, it says, despise no one in any state. No one. We can think of people now that we read and hear so much hatred for. I think hatred is the word on, on all sides. And our practice calls us to not go down that path. 
I think that's an impossible task to do always. But it's that reminder, you know, knock down nine times, get up ten. Even when failing, the Metasuda says, ah, don't despise anyone in any state. And it includes all sentient beings, all sentient beings. So we tend to think for some reason we've categorized sentient, you know, which means the ability to feel suffering. That's one very strong definition. As being only human. But in the length of the Kara Sutra, he's asked, the Buddha is asked, what about this thing of eating animals? And he gives reason after reason why this should not be done. A lot of it having to do with a belief in those days of karma in regards to rebirth and how you may be eating a relative. You know, you may be, uh, you know, so in the list of things is, is a common belief. And one of the wonderful things about Buddhism, I think, too, is that the Buddha obviously had a belief in rebirth because he said during his enlightenment when he experienced it all of his previous lives. But when asked, what happens when you die? He responded either with no response or I don't know. And it showed the possibility of having a belief in something but not extending it beyond that which we can show or prove. As the Buddha always said too, don't believe this, try it for yourself. Don't just take it on faith, try it for yourself. So, one of the main reasons and the one that most sings to my heart is it causes terror, it causes suffering. It, it's to slaughter and kill animals and all the different ways that we do it. Rodeos and circuses and pulling the plows, a um, million ways that we just find that other sentient creatures, creatures who feel, who suffer, don't think there's any question about that, uh, are treated less than. So when we think about, okay, these are wonderful ideals. Again, I talk about we may be called to more than just listening to the cries of the world. This is an action that we can begin with immediately upon exiting this meeting, when we go to our next meal. And that is not from shame or not from guilt, but from love. To say, I'm not going to participate in the killing of animals, not for clothing, not for medicines, I can help it. It's virtually impossible. So don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. You're not going to be perfect. There, there's going to be times when things are in there and you eat it, you're starving. But that intention and that following through of action, that's an action we can take right away. And I truly believe that there is a direct correlation 
between the way we treat animals and the way a culture treats animals and the treatment of all dispossessed peoples. Those that revere and cherish life in that way are different. It's different. It's the path of the bodhisattva ideal. So I'm going to read a little bit from Dogen now and talk about this kind of mystery because to me this is the mystery that I that I speak of is the bodhisattva ideal clear as a bell, beautiful. Difficult path, but beautiful. But in the recognition of shunyata, of emptiness, of all things, including suffering, including emptiness itself. Suffering, empty. This is the mystery. So he talks about it like this. There are two ways to penetrate body and mind, studying with the master to hear the teaching and devotedly sit zazen. Listening to the teaching opens up your conscious mind while sitting zazen is concerned with practice enlightenment. Therefore, if you neglect either of these when entering the Buddha way, you cannot hit the mark. And he mentions in Bodhisattva Shishoho, which is Bodhisattva's four methods of guidance, that there are four principles that we can apply. And they apply here, you'll see, in the working with shunyata, the heart of things as they are. The first guidance is giving. And of course, it's the first paramita too. And he says, giving means non-greed. It is to give away unneeded belongings to someone you don't know, to offer flowers blooming, or a distant mountain to the Tathagata, or again to offer treasures you had in your former life to sentient beings. So to give even a seed of understanding to someone is giving. Therefore, even a phrase or a verse of truth it will be wholesome seed for this and other lifetimes. Give your valuables, even a penny or a blade of, blade of grass, and it will be wholesome, root. And the truth can turn into valuables. Valuables can turn into, into the truth. And this is all because the giver is willing. Making a living and producing things can be nothing other than giving. Again, it's the connection to right livelihood. To leave flowers to the wind, to leave birds to the seasons. These are also acts of giving. So when I read to leave birds to the seasons, it means not to be hunting, not to be raising, serving, them up as food. Leave them. Leave them to the seasons. Leave them to the air. 
how freeing that is to be one with all sentient beings. So giving, second kind speech. What could be more appropriate to talk about now in this kind of era of the social media uh, vileness that we, that, that we see? And I see it among people who are religious. You know, I have many friends who are of different kinds of religions and the part of the religion that they seem to be focused on these days, and many of us too, is the angry, the angry God, the righteous anger. Of course, righteous anger is the most delicious kind, has all kinds of belief behind it and I think it's why in that wonderful sutra called the Xin Xin Ming, Verses on the Faith Mind, which it's, it's famous. It starts off with, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And it goes in to discuss about how without the likes and dislikes, uh, the way is easy. And at first I was put off by this because, well, yeah, it's easy. It's easy to not care, I guess. I mean, I, actually, I'm not sure. I, having only one life to live, I can't do it. So it's kind of like one of those things where it appears that other people can. And, uh, but this is... This is advocating it. So I put this out to the elders too. So like a hair breadth of difference between liking and disliking, making distinctions between right and wrong is considered a million miles away from the path. You fall off the path. And so again, I, I wonder, is the Xin Xin Ming, which my friend... Donan gave me. Um, is it referring to that momentariness that happens in Prajnaparamita, in which there is no right and wrong? In, in other words, is it like going to the well? They call that. You know, is, is it like the times when you need sustenance? You don't need to rethink things. There's not, it's not a question of trying to figure something out. It's not about figuring out. You need to sit. And if you can get to that point where no thoughts arise, if you can connect with shunyata in that way, no right or wrong. Also says no love or hate. And you think about that. Love isn't mentioned a lot in the Buddhist canon, but to me, it's the power behind it. When we talked about the sun earlier, we can feel it. We can feel that celestial Avalokiteshvara beaming down if we're open to it with our heart. I wonder if that's what it's like. That's what it is. That in that moment, no right and wrong, no love or hate. But then we must return to the mud and the blood 
to all the decisions that have to be made in uncertainty. We have to develop that tolerance for uncertainty that allows us to be with things as they are. So I've kind of laid out many different things there. And I think what I'm going to do now, I'm going to put up what I wrote because in it, there are some different aspects that might jar a response or a remembrance of something that I may have said. And I, I want to thank you so much for listening to me this morning. Well, let me share this screen. Make sure it's working. And if you want to undo your um, or undo your microphone and um, the video part, so that everybody can be seen. And uh, Nico, should we just open it up to questions or? Uh, sure. If anybody has a question, just unmute yourself oh, and. Um, speak. If you're having difficulty unmuting yourself, please um, send me an IM through chat and um, I can try to help. Um, I have a question, Mark. Thank you. First, thank you so much for this talk and this wonderful piece of writing. Um, there were two things that I wanted to uh, talk and ask. Uh, one, the first one is just a, a comment on something that you raised about eating of animals. And I was, I'd like to share my experience. Uh, I think around 2015, I was like greatly, greatly distressed about, um, uh, about whether or not to eat animals. And I, I read a lot of books and, and really got into it. And I, I started practicing vegetarianism for for quite some time i think it was about four years i i was i stopped eating meat um and and what i realized and this is uh this is just sharing my experience and no 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 kind of prescription here and what i realized was uh these four years i was like i was on one hand kind of satisfied uh, and happy that i was doing that but on the other hand I was dissatisfied and unhappy because I saw that everybody else was eating meat and they were having, they were, they were enjoying their food and they were like just not very conscious of uh, what they are doing. And it also cut me off from a lot of my friends and family. Uh, and I also realized that I could go without eating meat for the rest of my life and, uh, and the world wouldn't change. And so I took this decision and I also realized that I did like eating meat still. I, I liked enjoying food and, uh, and I liked good food. And so in, after four and a half years or so, I decided that what I'm going to do is for three and a half of the days of the week, I'm going to let myself eat whatever, whatever I want. And for the rest of the three and a half days, I'm not going to eat meat. And this is what I've been practicing ever since. And I have to say that it's kind of working. I'm satisfied and happy with my dietary choices. And I feel like, and I inspired one of my friends to do the same. And he, uh, he also started practicing this. And, may, and I think maybe like if it's hard to get the world to like stop eating meat altogether, maybe it's easier to get the world to stop eating meat for 50% of our time. 
So just I just wanted to share that. Uh, and then I had a question from the Meta Sutra this morning that we chanted. We said, uh, we said that um, let uh, uh, one of the first was let one not take one upon oneself the burden of riches. So I wanted to ask you, Mark, and any, anybody else uh, on the Zoom, what do we mean by the burden of the riches? Great question. I want to respond to your first point. And I, I have kind of two ways of looking at it. One is momentariness. And that is any time you don't eat animals or don't contribute to the slaughter and torture of animals. That is a wonderful moment. And so if you think about it, every moment is how we live our life, not with long-term goals and plans that are only ever realized in the present moment. And thinking of it like that, it just warms my heart that there are, are times when you're consciously thinking, when you look at that plate, that you're seeing a plate of peace, not of fear. And you're sacrificing, you could say. However, that goes to my second point, And that is, we have to think about this of sentient beings the Buddha didn't say, if it is easy for you, then love sentient beings or any of the aspects of it. He didn't say, if your family goes along with it, uh, if you lose a taste for it, if, uh, if your health can stand it, you know, if your health doesn't deteriorate, or if you lose friends, you know, don't, don't, do, don't do that for sentient beings. It's pretty, it's pretty clear. It's very straightforward. For some unknown reason, we in Buddhism, I think starting with the Japanese because of their um, love of fish, uh, completely ignored all of these things and decided that... Uh, you know, it's kind of a personal thing. It's a personal preference. It's up to you. Whatever you think is right, do. And I would say it's the same decision you must make about human slavery and human torture. Claire. And if, if, you, if you find that, yeah, you, you know, that's a personal choice. And people ought to be able to have slaves or whatever they want. That would be the moral decision. Because... It's kind of sentient, sentient beings is the definition that's used. And regardless of how hard it is, you know, it's both hard and easy, I would say. So anyway, that's, that's, that's my answer to that. Um, it needs to be taken off the table. So instead of it being sort of a choice, it would be the choice of shall we start eating children? You know, that, I mean, or children that are dead or that have died in car accidents or, you know, because they're, they're already dead. Why are we wasting really good meat? I put that in the same category. I, I, I agree with that. Just a quick 
point on that. I totally agree with that. That cannibalism and uh, meat eating have a uh, have a straight line to it. But I think uh, if we go back from it, like a lion eats a deer, and and saying that we are dif- different from a lion uh, in some way, we are very separate from them, is also something to be noticed. I think there is a line that one can draw. Uh, when we walk, we kill. Um, we kill uh, ants or we uh, when we eat uh, potatoes we eat, kill insects i think there's there's a lot to be thought about as i said, i was like for 5 years i was vegetarian and i thought about this every day um but I, I, i'm like i would love to discuss more and yeah. go even even deeper we're the first we're the first beings to have choice so that's the first thing i would say there's no other beings no other beings that have any choice. And our choice is to continue enslaving and killing other animals at this point, overwhelmingly. And I do think there's a direct relation between that and the violence that we see in the world because it's the ability to see things as other and see things as owned. So that would be just a seed. I would call that a consciousness seed, alaya consciousness. Uh, that that I would put in there. The burden of riches, too, just to kind of give my thoughts on that, the burden of riches means that you have to really be increasingly aware of where the money comes from and how it has been derived. It's a wonderful practice, but it becomes an increasing burden the more you have the more you have to look at what your investments are, where they're, what they're doing, what they're coming from. It's actually something that almost all of us in the West should be doing, thinking more and more about sustainability, for one thing, about equity in the world, about the impact of our purchases as consumers. That's, I think that's what the burden is, one of them. Nico? Hi, Mark. Thanks for your talk. Um, I'm thinking, I have a question for you or for um, anybody, really. If we're we're in the framework of uh, vegetarianism or veganism, um, how do we think about things like um, meat-flavored products that are not, in fact, meat or um, simulated leather? In, in consuming simulated leather or simulated meat, are we in some way um, eating those animals in effigy? Is there some connection or are we symbolically doing something? So would not um, these practices have to extend to um, that realm or am I just um, looking for trouble? Well, I I think people oftentimes bring up edge cases. And if you can't solve the edge case, then the the entire thesis is discredited. And the truth is, there is really no way of avoiding it. You know, as, as was said, you know, even eating vegetarian, the crops that we that we have numerous birds and other rodents and snakes and other creatures are killed in order to provide that food for us. Driving in a car, you know, roadkill, there's, or walking on um, ants. 
it's not so much about that. I think it's about the conscious choice that we have. Um, as they say, pick the low-hanging fruit first. Just by, there's an obvious evil and wrong that, that we see in the consumption and, and the slaughter and the torture of animals. Just start with that. Start with that. That's plenty good. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Other questions? Kathy, you must have a question. Um, actually, I, I don't. Uh, well, actually, I do. <laughs> I, think I, I think I have bed bugs. <laughs> yeah. The Dolly Oliver said that about the mosquito, I remember. Yeah. And um, although I, you know, I'm 99% or 95% vegan, um, there are times when I mean, I, I took the bed bug outside and I, and I released it outside, but then I thought, what if it's living in my bed, consuming me? And, um, and I got online and saw all the different ways that you can get rid of bed bugs, and they're not pretty. And I thought, but I would certainly do them if those bed bugs persist. Yeah, I know. I know, it... it it's not a perfect solution, but you know, to uh, there is no way of escaping this this kind of uh, you know what it's called todaitsu. todaitsu. We're trying to be a fish that slips out of the net of karma. That's what Dogen called it. I thought that was a great word. That's sort of the goal, todatsu. todaitsu. And um, we, can, we can only do the best that we can, and it's insufficient, but the meaning of it in our own life and the meaning of it each time that we do not participate is, I, I think that's, that's the bodhisattva ideal. You know, the bodhisattva ideal isn't to be attached to the results. You know, it's to the fact that right action uh, is in itself sufficient. What happens after that, we don't con control. And so much of what goes on, we need to do. You know, vaccines are tested on animals horribly, you know, to find out their limit of how much is too much and how much is not enough. And they're given, they're given horrible uh, diseases uh, and primates. You know, the, the kind that Eric worked with nearly, uh, you know, in, in these hospitals or in these research labs. So, anyway, loving thing. And we do the best we can, even with our children, you know. We do the best we can. We love them. But we, it's not a perfect world, and we can't spare everything. Thank you, Kathy. Michael? Yeah, uh, thank you for your talk. I mean, I, 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 but on the subject of, uh, of eating meat, like I won't eat meat that comes from a packing company. I mean, there's so much misery 
in every step, modern agriculture to the those horrible places of meatpacking. I mean, there's just, there's nothing. I mean, there's misery. It's just pure misery on every single level involved in that. But raising a chicken, if I raise chickens and one of the, and you want to eat a chicken, I, I mean, you kill it humanely because I, I don't, I don't, see that as any more suffering than the fox catching the chicken or the or the cat catching the mouse or the or the lion eating the deer for that matter um it's not torturing i don't think i mean that but the mass marketing of agriculture and the way we do these consuming it's, that's that's pretty bad that's just there's no good way around that you know, um, oh, and Kathy, if you got one bed bug, you got a bunch of bed bugs. <laughs> it's not, it's not that simple. I'm an entomologist. You got one bed bug, you better get some treatment and get rid of them. <laughs> <Oy vey. laughs> you, got, you, got, you got more than one bed bug. Oh God. And they don't cause disease in this country yeah. because they don't have the, they're not carrying parasites. They just, they'll just bite you and make your life uncomfortable. Um, but going back to the, the, yeah, I see your point about it being torture, but I think there's levels and there's ways of living that are humane, you know, in my mind. Humane slaughtering. Well, yeah, I mean, we kill a tree. We, I, I think a tree actually has, has a nervous system. It's just it's at a level that we can't hear. Well, you again, know. the low-hanging fruit is kind of where I would stick, stick with, uh, we have a choice and, um, we can't not eat, which is killing, but man, that, that kind of lets us off the hook then. Oh, what the heck? And I don't see it like that. And I, and certainly Buddha didn't see it like that. Although he ate meat, according to, uh, one of the books in our library, uh, the Buddha's, Buddha's diet. So, and when they went around with the baking bowls, apparently they were instructed to eat whatever was put into the baking bowls. Mm -hmm. Although, if you think about it, it would take one time to instruct the village that we don't eat meat, and that problem would be solved. So, again, that seems like a very flimsy uh, reason to, <laughs> to eat whatever's put in your bowl, I guess poisonous or not. So all of these things, really, though, they're, they're kind of pushing the, pushing the marbles around in a circle. And they're avoiding all these different ways that we have of justifying, of rationalizing. And uh, it's, this is only one issue. It's one start, but it's a huge one. I think, I think it's where things start. I'll, I'll go as far as to say, I think it's where things start if you want to heal the planet. If, if you're truly concerned about sustainability and humanity, about changing the way our culture, our cultures in the world work, we start with this. We start by not killing animals where we can. No more animal agriculture. That would be a wonderful thing to be known as, as Buddhists, that, that we, we don't participate in that. Just this last week was Eid, in Muslim lands. And the villages run red with the blood of animals that are sacrificed. 
to the gods, I guess, to please them. Yeah, and uh, just one more point. I think that is the future, Mark. I think I think the future is a vegetarian future, non-meat-eating future. But the question is, what is the fastest way to get there? Is it to just prescribe everybody to not eat? Or is, it, or is there a better way? Just my thoughts. Yeah, well, I'm just planting a seed. And I appreciate, you know, uh, just kind of listening to it. Because I know it's hard to listen to it you know, something that goes against, um, it goes against the, almost the entire world. But yes, Shinshin Den. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I agree with the idea of sort of doing the middle, middle path of, eating meat only a few days a week rather than every day. Although I think the ultimate goal is not to eat meat at all. But with that um, example you gave, Mark, of the donable of, for food, with food, um, all it takes is one person to put meat in there and then you're tainted for the rest of the time you use that bowl unless you're well no even if you're pretty pretty darn uh, cleanly thank you thank you Ben you know on the subject of Donna I just want to mention one of the things I have been worried about is how Jokoji is doing uh, without having sashins, without being able to rent rooms, without having, you know, a Sunday presence where people are. And I just want to say that the, the practice of dana for me, which is giving, uh, if you would, uh, please make out any checks or dana to Jokoji Zen Center. And or donate on their website, which is uh, really easy to to do. And um, I would appreciate any kind of donna that you could give uh, going to them, because I don't want to see anything happen oh, to Jokoji. It's one of the best things in the world, and of all the things going on, it's needed now more than ever. And I want to also honor and thank all the people that are keeping it keeping that flame lit there at Jokoji and, and keeping all of this for us, you know, helping create the Zoom. I don't know how you got Zoom out to the Zendo. I, <laughs> I didn't think anything worked out there, but I just appreciate all the efforts that you've done so much. And I want, want to make sure that we keep, keep your heads above water and so that we have a place of practice and, and we can be together as a Sangha. Thanks, Mark. Um, can you hear me here at Jokoji? Yes. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Thanks so much for your talk, and thanks, everyone, for attending. Um, here on campus, um, it's about time for us to head up and in, have lunch that Doug has cooked for us today. I'd like to invite everyone that would care to stay on the line and, and continue the discussion. Please feel free to, but I, I'd like to, um, at this point, 
do the closing chant, and then us here will will vacate the, the zendo. But again, feel free to continue um, staying on Zoom. Would that be okay with you, uh, Mark? If we uh, closing chant? Yes. Okay. Here we go. May our intention equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are endless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Mark. Yes. Um, I just, um, it just dawned on me in a sense that the Buddha's way is a path and that there's a certain amount of leaning in that happens throughout one's um, trip on the path or, or walking the path. And one of the things that I'm leaning into um, is organic food because and at first it was well i don't want to put poisons into my food well that's one way of thinking about it and then it was well i don't want to poison the land and the earth okay that's good that's one way of thinking about it and um now it's even well that would be causing suffering, poisoning the, the bugs and stuff. Um, and so not that I have become an, an organic eater, but I am at the stage in my practice where I am starting to think about it. Mm -hmm. And um, there you go. <laughs> I think... I mean, I can feel it, and I wonder if others can too, how these things align. Mm. This new relationship that we need to have with the earth where we're no longer conquerors, but we're conservators. Mm. We're conservators with all of the elements that we can. We have as little impact on the earth as possible. We reduce our consumption tremendously in order for equity in the world. You know, one of the things, just as a fact, uh, about 40% of the food that is grown in the world goes to feed animals. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, huge portion of the corn and soybean crops uh, just goes for feeding animals, which eliminate that. And you've got this incredible surplus of food. There should be no one hungry on this, on this earth. And so... I see all these things, they start to align. They're not going to align, though, coming from a position of guilt and shame. I think what guilt and shame are, though, to me, they're like scouts. They, they alert me. Now, it could be the scout might say something like, you know, you should feel bad about this because this and this and this. And then I can take that in and I can say, well, 
No, I think I, I think I've, I've kind of weighed these and I've done this. And so I'm going to let that go. But without that kind of notification from that scout, I might not have felt that. So guilt and shame, you know, um, have their definite Or even place. awareness. Yeah, towards awareness. I mean, towards awareness of things that you might not feel. And, you know, another point is about empathy. And we talk about the importance of empathy. But to me, after really thinking, looking at it a lot, empathy is a bit of a diagnostic tool. In other words, it's one of those things where empathy gives us the ability to understand and see things from a much closer to the heart perspective. So it's closer, yeah, it's closer and more inclu in inclusive. But at the point that you reach that, you need, we need to back off of empathy so that we can be effective in the same way that an emergency room doctor is effective. They, they see a child, they see a child suffering, it triggers something, and now they want to do everything possible effectively to cause the child not to suffer. There's no need for them to feel with, to suffer with that child. It would only bring them down. I think people have empathy burnout. They don't have compassion burnout. You know, I, you kind of have heard that saying, there's compassion burnout. You know, I'm just, oh, I don't, I just feel so bad about everything. I, I wonder if that's not empathy burnout. And that if that gets translated into right action where you actually do something and you have a stoic view from stoicism of recognizing the things you can change and working specifically on the things that you, you can do. And then having the courage to follow through. You know, we talk, talked about resilience and energy. And it's, it's interesting because stoicism, you know, began just a couple hundred years, as I understand it, after Buddhism, you know, like 2300 or 2000 or something like that, BC, Zeno. And, wow. uh, and it, it was started in Greek, but it was really developed in Rome. You know, Marcus Aurelius' meditations and Seneca's letters and uh, Epithetus, the, the, his notes. And, you know, we've translated as being, well, as somebody that doesn't show emotion. But actually, what it means to be stoic is to have uh, a lot of strength and courage in what must be born. There's things in this world that we just have to bear. We can't do something about, so we need to just bear it and not be, woe is me. So that combination, it's kind of an interesting combination, if you think about it, of the bodhisattva ideal, which, as I understand it, is not personal. It's, it's not about, I feel bad for Mark because he's got a bad back and this and that. You know, it's not like that. It's, it's a impersonal <coughs> and widespread uh, acknowledgement of all of the kind of the first noble truth of suffering of death, the denial of death uh, and of illness and of all of these things. Anyway, few thoughts. <laughs> a, a question there for you, Mark, you mentioned uh, uh, the, you mentioned com compassion and empathy. Uh, I was just curious, what is the difference between them? There's a, there's an empathy burnout, but not a compassion burnout. Why, why so? Well, empathy, as I understand it means to feel the same as to, when you empathize with someone, 
you're not feeling bad for them. You're feeling bad as them. You're feeling the same bad. So it's kind of a way of the, the Native Americans had a saying called, until you walk a mile in my moccasins. And what that is, I think, is a interpretation of, of, of this. This is about until you are able to see through my eyes of how I live. I think it's the essence of what's going on now in the social movements that we see. We, we who aren't there don't see it. We might have an intellectual understanding, but the empathy that's required is to really see it through the eyes of someone like that. That's not always possible, but it's a kind of a goal. But if you go too far with it, if you become empathetic to the point that you're continually dragged down and you see people, especially people with wonderful hearts, they get dragged down. They just feel like the world's gone to hell. I'm, I'm not going to be able to, I can't do anything. My little bit, kind of like you mentioned, I'm not going to be able, my little contribution isn't going to matter. And, and so I think not, not, not remaining in the realm of empathy, but instead then transferring to the role of uh, what can I do of right action? Okay. I understand what this is. I'm remaining open to hearing. And now how can I help? You know, here's my hands. Here's my mind. Here's my heart. What can I do? Do action. So again, calling for more than just ideas, ideals, uh, support, from afar, but what can I do? Uh, can I say something? I mean, Please. I mean, I want to say something. Since you mentioned aid, I was born in Muslim. Uh, aid has a close correspondence to Thanksgiving in the U.S., by the way. But, but a when close I was correspondence to I'm Thanksgiving sorry, in the aid? U.S. Yeah. Thanksgiving. That's right. Uh, but, and I've been part of both cultures, so I've seen... So when I was six or seven in my grandfather's house, and this goes to, to what you mentioned about the humane sacrificing of animals, uh, I saw the sheep being given water because the Muslims give sheep water yeah. on the, in the mouth to quench his thirst. They say a prayer, and they, I'm sorry to say, but then they cut the sheep's throat. Mm-hmm. And after that, I could not eat meat for several years, and our family was not vegetarian. There was no concept of vegetarianism. So they would make food with meat. I didn't know as a child what else to do. You know, I would take the meat and put it on the side of the plate. And uh, I, I went through a difficult time with the grown-ups. But I would, I would refuse to eat it. And my mother took my side. So then over the years, I'm 57 now, over the years, I've had mixed relation with eating meat. I came to the U.S., I was 16, I was working in Burger King, I ate a lot of double whoppers and stuff. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm happy to say, you know, since I took the, actually before I took two clay vows, since, since I came to Buddhism, I have not eaten red meat. And then a few years ago, I stopped eating meat altogether. And you know, when you talk about humane killing of animals, what I felt as that kid was, I, the word empathy that you use, I viscerally felt my neck being cut. Mm. 
no prayer was going to justify that to me. I'm sorry if it's disturbing to people, but, you know, no prayer was going to justify that to me, including His Holiness justifying eating big animals. Yes. Because it's killing one life instead of many, many lives. Yeah. The, the, the Dalai Lama, yes. Absolutely. Yes, yes, it's holiness, yes, Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama. I so, feel our, our leadership has really, it, just in this way, I mean, some people cast out everything, oh, if somebody says something they don't agree with, and that's not the way I feel either about, like, the Dalai Lama, or, or, or even about, you know, certainly about, about Islam, but I, there are certain aspects of things that I think we can I- identify as as that but i'm sorry kave i interrupted no yeah so what i'm saying is empathy has a value feeling another being suffering as if it's you know suffering as visceral it's visceral value that can really point you to a different way to be and the second thing i wanted to say really quickly is just look at the pandemic we're in and the swine flu we're in mm-hmm. it's directly a result of human beings eating meat and mixed animals cultivating animals that eat other animals' meat, and then human beings consume it. If there was no, if, if, if you're vegetarians, there would be no pandemic. That's not true. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe, this, maybe it's not, uh, Michael, but I, what I know, what I saw with my own eyes, and in my heart, at seven, praying doesn't justify, you know, sacrificing animals. For, for me, you know, I could, I could, I could be, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but I, I, you know, I took a vow to speak truth. So I'm sorry for coming on so strong, but that's that's my point of view. Thank you. Yeah, I I want to add. Uh, I want to add that I'm glad that you uh, brought this topic, Mark, because uh, because food is something that is real to all of us, and it's it's a great way to practice. I'm glad that we're discussing this. And discussion is going in my different directions. I want to add that I think it's very easy to be righteous about uh, what is what should be done and what should not be done, and, and that is one of the traps that one can fall into. Uh, on one of the one of the previous, uh, uh, I guess, um, previous Zoom sessions we had, where where Vanya came. And he was telling this story about Thich Nhat Hanh, who was going to give the secret of how to be a teacher. And, uh, and he said, the secret is this. And everybody was listening with their, their ears open. And Thich Nhat Hanh said, the, the secret to be a Buddhist teacher is to be happy. If you are happy, then you can teach other people. So I think with food as well, uh, I think um, it, the most important is, uh, I think it's not to be, uh, not to be, righteous but what you think is right for you and what is what is your center um and uh, and work with that and go from there it's it's very it's very easy to be saying that this is my uh, this is my center and this is right and everybody else should follow it without having empathy or compassion with with others but anyways i i, I that's the point i wanted to make uh, but my previous question was not Respectfully about you, to say, it was, uh, 
my previous question was about difference between empathy and compassion and you spoke about empathy and it went into me teeting again and i just want to get back that what do you think is the difference between empathy and compassion when does compassion empathy becomes compassion or when does compassion is just empathy compassion is defined as the desire to reduce the suffering it's the desire empathy is feeling with now the actual you know if you look at compassion compassion means with feeling so it it sounds very similar so somebody might interpret it as being to to feel with somebody compassion you know with passion but as my understanding of it from a psychological point of view empathy is like i said is trying to to feel to see things through another's eyes or to see things with you know like and compassion is wanting to reduce the suffering of others so it's it's a it's a slightly different thing compassion is is something where you want to do something to reduce suffering empathy is when you want to feel something with someone that's how i would define it and other people might have different views but empathy leads to compassion and i'm sorry uh, corn i wasn't i'm sorry time for jumping in but i, I want to say something uh i was describing my choice i'm not prescribing on anybody else to be to be meat, not eat meat but that's my belief that when you eat meat you're contributing to suffering and the the point about the point about tik not han was to be happy tik not han himself doesn't eat meat and happiness cannot always come at cannot come at the expense of others he's talking about a different kind of happiness those those okay. are different is it is a different kind of happiness no no but since you mentioned tik not han said the highest priority is to be happy we we have to define happiness so there's no time to discuss but then, this what i'm saying yeah. i don't think you can have a summer time maybe because what if you want okay sure yeah well i'm just but saying too i don't, I don't think i don't think he means that the highest priority is to be happy i mean that would be just the hedonist's credo it's it's that's not a credo for somebody walking a bodhisattva path but so but you know context is everything he was probably saying it within the context of something that it you can't give out this medicine you know that the buddha has prescribed uh with a by when you hate people you know when like for instance like you were saying karn if somebody was so righteous they're like saying i just hate people and what they do this is kind of the same thing that happened to um uh victor uh in uh auschwitz is that he sometimes just wanted to crawl in the hole and just say the hell with all of humanity because he saw this unbelievable unjustifiable horror and suffering that people would do to them you know uh, some sometimes even other prisoners who served as capos as the kind of the uh, overseers of their of their own people they were some some of the worst and but in what dogen said and i that's why i tried to tie this in i don't know how well i did but i tried to tie all these threads together dogen has a part where he he says in uh i think guidelines to practicing that a good ruler does not hate his people never gets tired of them doesn't say oh my people are ignorant you know, you know and i jeez i lead them but i don't think any of them are worth it you know what i mean he's saying the wise ruler loves his people and with their faults and with all the other things so 
I, I think there's a way of being a teacher who points out like a scout something that causes shame or guilt, like in this case, meat eating, by pointing out a reality, not a theoretical instance of, you know, something where we're making something up. And I, I think this would be the case that people who actually went to a slaughterhouse before they ate, there's no way they would say, I'm going to sit down for a double whopper now. What it is, there's something about human nature that if you can get a distance between you, and this is what happened in Germany. People say, how could that happen in Germany? How could they have six million Jews exterminated? What, what? The people of Germany were not at the camps. And they heard, oh, you know, there's something going on, but, you know, there's rumors, but I, 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 I don't know. It's none of my, it's, it's a preference of mine not to be involved. I want to support our, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's when we're faced with something up front that the decision becomes much more difficult. And often what the response is, is anger. You know, in people that where it's put up, if, if you ever look at the posts on, online, some of the most vitriolic posts are against people who are vegetarians. I mean, it's very strange, but it's, uh, it just, it cues them. But for us as Buddhists, we need to look at it. And I agree, it's a preference. I mean, there's not like anything somebody would want to do to, to you. It is a preference, but it's one that uh, I, I think is worth looking at and leads to so many others in this area. Then you have organic foods, then you have sustainable um, transportation, and you have sustainability in all the different ways. And it, it just extends out farther and farther, social justice. And these things are all connected. And uh, this is something you can do right, just starting with the next meal. So anyway, that's why I advocated it today in the context of hearing the cries of the world. Mark? Yes. Hi. Thank you for Hi. this topic. It's wonderful. Um, so something that I was exposed to yesterday is called loca apiary. And it's about, you know, we talk about um, being vegetarian, but we need bees to support. Yes. So the way apparently we've been doing uh, using bees on a commercial level and putting them in these little boxes is not necessarily um, historically correct um, or appropriate for bees. So it's almost like putting bees in little little prisons, mm -hmm. and we buy bees from uh, outside of our watershed and put them in little square boxes, which is totally not natural for them um and we're and we're losing a lot of our bees so this particular person is now um encouraging people to uh try to help their local watersheds and rewilding bees putting empty logs in different watersheds in their area and encouraging bees to go back to their natural way of being the idea is they will go out and pollinate happily and come back to these logs in the watershed and it'll be a more natural, happy, um, genteel way for our bees to be versus using them in a commercial, harsh, 
deadly environment the way we use them now and not bringing them from far away, local. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's called loca, like locavore. It's like loca apiary. So it's even taking vegetarian down to another level of sensitivity yeah. and kindness. I, I, I just love your poster, that. by the way. I see that in the back. A world oh, of pollinators. <laughs> <That's great. Yeah. laughs> Thanks. Okay, thank you. I just well, wanted to share that. Thank you. Just, just to speak, though, I mean, you, you say that, you know, it would be help, like, nice for the bees, but the bees aren't, aren't from North America. The presence of honeybees in North America is decimating all the local bees that pollinate the plants. And so that, you know, you can take this thing down to so many different levels. You know, it's, it's you know, you, you do one thing, it impacts another thing. I agree. I agree that the commercialization of bees is bad, you know, but how else are you going to pollinate your crops? I think what he was doing is not bringing in outside bees. He was providing a space for them in the uh, local um, uh, watershed, but not bringing in right. any more outside. And that he was very anti bringing in bees from somewhere else. And yeah, they're, they are European, um, but they are here. Yeah, I know. So... Hey guys, Pamela was trying to speak for a long time, but she couldn't get in. So she kept yeah. showing and she couldn't get in. Pamela was trying to speak for a long time. She couldn't say what she wanted to say and she signed off. So, I mean, maybe we should, instead of just jumping in, Kosho okay. and... Who else is... Pamela signed off. She was trying to speak for a long time. I'm I know that she signed off. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay, but I just mentioned that. I've been noticing that happen. Yeah, you know what? I, 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 I know I'm not a good. Uh, I, I, this is the second. Well, we have moderators, you know. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Shishin was also talking, okay, trying please. to speak earlier, much earlier. He had his hand up in Gosho for a long time. Please and we didn't get to him. Yeah. Shishin, I think. That I, uh, no, he, you went to Shishin. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. I just, I just noticed it, so I just mentioned it. But that's yeah. all. Is there anybody else that's been waiting a long time? Would like to speak? No, but I do want to thank Kave for being in a herd. There is always a lookout. Hmm. So thank you. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Kave. No problem. I usually am the most guilty of speaking over multiple <laughs> times. And me and Karn are going to have a debate now sometimes. So <laughs> he's much more logical than me, so I need all the help I can get. I want to so. be there. I want to be there. <laughs> no, okay. Lovely talk, Mark. I was really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really. I'm so really glad to see everybody. I can't tell you how this has made me feel. Uh, so I've been so disconnected, and and it's been wonderful to see everybody. And and I love you, and I miss you, and I can't wait until uh, we can meet again, uh, <clears throat> heart to heart. And Karen, you were right about my righteous anger. By the way, I won't deny that. <laughs> you, you nailed it. <laughs> Mark, thank you. Okay. Thank you for your talk and your time, and it's great seeing you. We, we've missed you up here. Thank I you. say up here. I'm actually not up there, but <laughs> I'm up. I'm up there in spirit, the same way you are, and the way everybody else is. But uh, yeah, it's great. Thank you so much, Nico. All right. Thank you. Or anybody else have oh, any yeah. any last last thoughts? Last final thoughts, Kave. I can tell you got something. <laughs> no, I no, I didn't actually. I wasn't gushing for that, but I would love 
more to you started with emptiness and uh that was my actually that was one of the questions i asked connie about the one you were in the mondo right that was pretty much i thought you wrote this it was like direct answer to what i'd asked about the bright pearl and suffering and seeing the emptiness of suffering there's a tension there isn't there at least for me in recognizing shin, shinyata and with all of the uh, encouragements to not judge you know if you think about it you know Karn to your point too to not judge and a, as being uh, a wise path and yet the bodhisattva ideal which if you have no preferences I mean yeah the great way is easy for those with no preferences so if, if you don't have any preferences between between freedom and slavery and between you know <laughs> uh, you're kind of going along with what is so that's the tension I was kind of speaking at is working with that. And, and my only, my first swing of it, you know, we call it taking a swing of the bat at it was that perhaps it means when we're in deep uh, concentration practice, we're touching shunyata. And in that place, there is no judgment, no right and wrong, no, uh, you know, judgment of any kind. And then from there, the, the possibility of wisdom might arise. I, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of, that's my initial thought. But would anybody have any thoughts I on this? Shishin, Shishin wants to say something. Shishin. Ben. Ben. I just want to say, sorry, I was checking if I was unmuted. I just want to say I look forward to laughing with you in the future, Mark. <laughs> Me too. Nothing better than belly laughs, always. Ben is the Ben's got my vote as the as the song called comedian. I mean, just like he nails it every single time, <laughs> every single cool. time. Joyous brings joy every oh, single time. I just missed that. Oh, wonderful! Actually, actually, current to your point about the point of being a teacher is to be jo or uh, joyous. The one number one responsibility. Ben is such an example for me. Like every, you know. Every interaction I've had, every, <laughs> no, really, every, every, honestly, every interaction, his wicked sense of humor. Thank you. He doesn't spare any bullshit, you know, what? <laughs> such a nice way. <laughs> Lovely man. Yeah. Oh. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I agree with that. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Habib. Thank you, Margaret from uh, A-Town. And uh, okay, let's oh. see. Yeah. Carolina, thank you, Carolina, Karen, yeah, Rhoda, Michael, Kave, yeah, Kathy, Shinshin, Ben, with two n, with one n. <laughs> all right, we'll see y'all soon. Love you, Thank you. Thank you. Aloha, Sensei. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.